So this afternoon, we are going to be continuing on in our series in the book of Luke. So to refresh our memories, or if you weren't here, to to hear for the first time, last week we looked at the story of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. And what we we, we heard was how, in spite of his ill-gotten wealth, when he encountered, when he came face to face with Jesus... He didn't turn away because of his sin, but rather, actually, he received him with joy. Zacchaeus, a man who was was seen as as an enemy of his own people, he repented and received Jesus with joy. And the last verses, the last couple of verses that we read last week were from chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. This is what they said. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Which is where we're going to be picking up from this morning. So if you have a Bible, then please turn with me to Luke 19, and we'll continue reading from verse 11. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry, because the words will be up on the screen. So Luke 19, verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay, so verse 11 begins with Luke saying, as they heard these things, referring, of course, to the passage that we just looked at from last week. So these things that Luke is referring to is the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So it was this that the crowd had heard that Jesus was beginning to tell the parable. And hopefully Luke begins by giving us the reason why he is about to tell the parable that we're about to hear. And that reason is because Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and his listeners, the people that he was talking to, thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Or in other words, Jesus told this parable because those around him had misunderstood what he was saying when he said he was here to seek and save the lost. Because at the time of hearing this, the people of Israel would have been hoping in prophecies such as Zechariah chapter 9, which talks of how the Lord will go to battle, how the Lord will defeat his enemies in Jerusalem, which is where Jesus was heading and how Jesus would become king over all the earth. So perhaps not unreasonably, this is what they thought was happening here. They would have thought that Jesus was going to wage war against their human enemies, and he was going to usher in the kingdom of God by force. They believed that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem would be triumphant, in that he would overturn their oppressors, the Romans, and he would set up a physical kingdom. Maybe in their mind it would have been a physical kingdom, much like the one that King David um, reigned over back in what they would have seen as the good old days. They certainly did not understand the truth that Jesus was about to depart from this earth. It ought to be crowned as the king of the kingdom of God which is why Jesus is telling this parable. He's telling this parable to hint, to show his disciples of his imminent departure, where he was going to go and receive kingship and reign until some time known only by the Father, at which point 
he would return to earth in glorious triumph, making the kingdom of God visible to everyone. So that's the background to the parable that Jesus is telling this morning. So let's turn back to the passage and read verses 12 and 13. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So as we've learned in verse 11, Jesus is telling this parable because his listeners believe that he is about to enter Jerusalem and he is immediately about to inaugurate God's kingdom. But he wants them to know that before God's kingdom comes in its fullness, that first he, Jesus, is going to go away. So in the parable, we can see that Jesus is represented by the nobleman who is headed into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. And in doing so, Jesus is preparing his followers, represented by the servants, so that they knew that he was going away, and so they knew what they were to do. And Jesus gives the instruction to them of what they are to do. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. So here the nobleman gives each of the servants a mina, which incidentally is a, it's a decent amount of money. A mina is, is a, apparently around three months of your average salary. And this is what he had given them to invest on his behalf. Likewise, Jesus equips each of his followers to do what he is calling them to do. And when I say his followers, I don't just mean those that he's talking to here. This is anybody here that is professing to know Jesus. Firstly, he does so by giving each of us his Holy Spirit, God with us, living in us, empowering us to live our lives in ways that bring glory to him. And by the power of the Spirit, he gives us gifts, he gives us talents, he gives each of us abilities, which he causes us to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. We see this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 7. It says this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we each have abilities that are God-given abilities. In addition to our specific gifts, which are obviously specific to each individual, we all also have the gift of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So for us to engage in business until Christ returns is just this. We are to invest what he has given us and we're to trust in and we are to live out the gospel in order to bring about kingdom advance. Because as Paul says in Romans 1.16, it is the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what does this look like? Well, there are a number of ways that we can do this. Of course, one of the first ways that comes to mind is we can tell others who don't know Jesus the good news, the gospel. This is a calling on every believer, even if you feel like you're gifted is an evangelist. We can also invest in what God has given us 
by growing in our own personal walk through repentance, through prayer, through daily dependence on the Holy Spirit, by trusting in him to meet our needs, by trusting in him to guide our decisions. Or another way is by serving those who are in need and showing the love and mercy of Christ to people who are lonely, people who are sick, people who are homeless, people who are afraid, people who are grieving. Another way still is by loving and serving our brothers and sisters in church, the church family, to build up the body. We can even do this in the workplace or in our homes by seeking simply to act in a way that displays the supremacy of Christ. As Paul instructs in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. In other words, as long as it is done with the intention of bringing glory to God, anything and everything we do can be an investment into his kingdom. Now, this is really, really important for us to grasp because we can sometimes think to ourselves, I don't get opportunities to live out my faith. I'm just too busy at work or I'm stuck at home all day with children or I'm not good at sharing my faith with people. Whatever, in all things, we can bring God glory by doing them with thanksgiving, by trusting Jesus in them, by considering others' needs greater than our own for the sake of the gospel. It's going to be different for each of us. So when you pray, make it a priority to ask God for wisdom for how you can do this in your specific circumstance. And you can know that he will help you in this because this prayer is certainly a prayer that is in accordance with his will. Okay, let's go back to the passage and read verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Okay, so we've now got a new group of characters added to the story, the citizens. So who do they represent? Well, given Jesus is the nobleman who is going to go away, and then he is going to come back to return and to rule, I think the citizens must be those that he is coming back, those that he is returning to. In other words, the citizens of a whole world. And again, here... Jesus is showing his disciples what will happen when he goes away, that many in the world will hate him. They will not want his rule or his reign, which I think is a pretty accurate representation of what we see today. I think one stark way that we see this and possibly don't even notice it is when the name of Jesus is uttered by people who don't know Jesus, more often than not, it's uttered as a curse word. This is crazy, isn't it? Of all the people in history, no other name is used in this way to this extent. That the name of Jesus, the Son of God, the King over all creation, the only one able to offer eternal salvation, that his name is so often spat out in contempt, should be horrifying. I think it just goes to show how subtle the tactics of the devil are and how deeply ingrained the world is in the hatred of Jesus, even to this subconscious level, because Jesus stands against everything that the world stands for. Jesus says, I am the way, 
The prevailing message that we hear, that we're fed today, is go your own way, choose your own path, be your own man, be your own woman, don't follow anyone, blaze your own trail. Jesus says, I am the truth. But again, this flies in the face of the oft-taught mantra that you do what you want to do. As long as you're not hurting anybody, there is no objective right or wrong. There is no, no, excuse me, nearly choked. There is no truth. And Jesus says, I am the life. It doesn't take too long to look around at the world that we live in to see that, that it doesn't value life in the way that Jesus intends. Just one example, every single year, approximately 40 to 50 million babies are killed or aborted in the womb. More often than not, in countries that would be considered as enlightened. We should be shocked by statistics such as this. They should cause us to weep in anguish. But so often we're not because death and darkness is all around us. We're accustomed to it. When we contemplate these things, I think it is clear to see that the world that we're living in today, whilst maybe not saying we actively reject Jesus, the world that we are living in today rejects Jesus in the same way that the citizens do in this parable. Okay, let's turn back to verse 15. Thanks. I'm just going to get some water. <laughs> Okay, verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Now here Jesus is clearly pointing towards the day of judgment. And that day of judgment begins with those that claim to know him. Carrying on. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm of the belief that majority of us here in this room this morning would fall under the category of servants in this parable. We're professing to be following Jesus, meaning this particular section should be of a lot of interest to us. Because what Jesus seems to be suggesting here is that his servants, i.e. most of us, will receive different levels of reward dependent upon how well we invest what God has given to us. So what does this mean? In fact, firstly, I think it's probably worthwhile looking at what this doesn't mean. Because we know that this cannot mean that if we do good works, then somehow we're deserving of something from God. And there are many scriptures that we can point to in this. But I think one of the most helpful that we'll start with is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, which talks of the relationship between grace and works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Clearly, we all fall far short 
of God's perfect standard. There is nothing that we can do, no amount of good works that are going to bridge that gap. It is entirely a free gift of grace. That is, it is entirely God's undeserved kindness towards us that can save us from sin, that saves us from eternity separated from him. At the cross, Jesus paid the price. He said, it is finished, in full, done. The gap between our sin, God's greatness is so vast that all the good works in the world would never even register in beginning to pay back what he has given to us for free. But as we read here in the book of Ephesians, this gift of salvation in Jesus then enables us to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us ahead of time. And then we couple this with what we've just read in the book of Luke, and we see that we will be rewarded for our faithfulness when we walk in these good works that he has prepared for us. So we don't earn these rewards. We're just doing what we should be doing anyway. Our good works don't mean we deserve something more from God. Our sin means that we still deserve eternal separation from him. But in his kindness, he gives us far more than we deserve. Which is, of course, what we see in the passage this afternoon in Luke. The servant earned ten minas. From his, uh, for his master, from the mina that he was given. Now, you would say maybe the, the master would have been generous if he'd given him a commission of 10%, so maybe a mina to keep. But he didn't. He let the, the, the servant keep all 10 minas, and as well, he gave him 10 cities, which is immeasurably greater than the value of money that he'd received in the first place and that he'd earned for his master. It's not even comparable. But what Jesus does seem to be saying is that the reward that we will receive will be in proportion to our faithfulness. The servant who made 10 minas received 10 times the reward. The servant who made five minas received five times the reward. This is a sobering thought, isn't it? And I don't know about you, but personally, I find it leaves me with some unanswered questions. For example, Jesus is using a parable here, so our reward won't be to rule over citizens, I don't think. So what will this actually look like? Will some people have more resources than others in heaven? Will there be some form of hierarchy? Does the reward come in the form of responsibility as it would seem to in this passage? What if you don't like responsibility? Can you turn the reward down? How is it all going to work? And the humbling answer, and I've been looking but the humbling answer is we don't know because nowhere in the Bible does it lay this out clearly. But we can know two things. Firstly, the new heaven and the new earth shall be perfect. Revelations 21 verses 1 to 4 say this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. There shall be no more pain, there shall be no more mourning, there shall be no more crying. We shall dwell with God. To be in his presence means that we must be sin-free. So although some will have greater rewards than others, there will clearly not be envy about it because that would be sin. Everything, rather, will be in its perfect order. Now, Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American theologian, he very helpfully puts it like this. Christ tells us that he who gives a cup of water to a disciple in the name of a disciple shall in no ways lose his reward. But this could not be true if a person should have no greater reward for doing many good works than if he did but few. It will be no dampening to the happiness of those who have lower degrees of happiness and glory, that there, are other, that there are others advanced in glory above them, for all shall be perfectly happy. Everyone shall be perfectly satisfied. Every vessel that is cast into this ocean of happiness is full, though there are some vessels far larger than others, and there shall be no such thing as envy in heaven. But perfect love shall reign throughout the whole society. I, I love this. What it's telling us is we, we all have different sized vessels, but every vessel will be perfectly full. It's such an amazing glimpse at the wisdom and the glory of God. So we don't need to worry about this, whether our status, whether our level of rewards will uh, cause strife or envy or problems in heaven. This would be impossible. But still, of course, Jesus is telling us that these rewards, he's telling us about these rewards, should I say, in order that we strive after them. Because he knows that they will bring us immeasurable joy, far greater than the minuscule cost now of doing these good works that he has already prepared for us. So we need to ask ourselves some questions. What am I doing with what I have. Jesus is watching to see whether we can be trusted to serve him. What we do with our time, our money, our resources, the things he's given us, ultimately what we do with the gospel has eternal significance, which should lead us to beg the question of why are we wasting time thinking about earthly ambitions when God has infinitely greater glories in store? For each of us. So let's be motivated by this. Let's strive to invest what God has given us for the sake of his glory. Okay, let's turn back the passage. We're going to pick up verses 20 to 23. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Now, in direct disobedience to the instruction that he was given, this servant chose to hide the mina away in a handkerchief. Now, this should serve as a very stark warning for us. Are we being obedient 
to the call that God has given us? Or like the servant, are we driven by fear, afraid to talk about our faith because we're worried of what people may think about us. We're worried of the consequences it may have for us. Afraid to give of our money generously in case it leaves us short. Afraid to throw ourselves into serving our brothers, serving our sisters, because we're more worried about our ability, we're more, more, more worried about our energy to do so, rather than relying on Jesus for our strength. More than this, like the servant, do we even seek to blame God for our shortcomings? Look again, verse 21. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. In other words, he's saying, what's the point? Even if I do make money for you, you will only take it away from me. Which as we see from his dealings with the other servants is not even true. To those that were faithful, the master showed incredible generosity. As we see here, his severeness is only towards those who refuse to bow the knee in obedience. Again, we need to consider our own view of God. And this is very, very important. Do you see God as a harsh and a severe taskmaster? When you think of his character, do you imagine that he's kind of trying to catch you out in some way, seeking an angle to, to punish you for your shortcomings? And this leads you to respond in fear. Or equally, inside, do you in some ways despise God for his harshness? Maybe this manifests in you feeling apathetic about doing good works that bring him glory. Any that you do do are out of grudging duty rather than joyful obedience. We must see that responses like this come from believing a lie from the very pit of hell. Because the truth is that every good thing, every good thing that we have has been given to us from God. Even down to the air that we breathe. More than this though, Jesus, God, has offered himself for our sins. Paying the full penalty so that we can receive all that is due to Jesus for his perfect, spotless obedience. When we look to the cross, we can see that Jesus has done everything. He's paid the price in full. So our obedience in seeking to bring glory to him doesn't earn us anything. Rather, our obedience is the only appropriate response to his magnificent grace. So what happens to those that are like this servant? Let's continue reading from verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. As we see, the little that this third servant has is taken away from him and given to those that have already received the most. And those around him thought that this was unfair. Why are you taking his only mina and giving it to him? He's already got 10 minas. But of course, what this misses is the fact that they were all the master's minas in the first place. He had given them out in the first place. And based on what the third servant said about the nobleman, he had no expectation of keeping it anyway. And of course, neither should he. So what this does is actually highlights God's generosity to those 
that seek to be faithful towards him. But I think the burning question that remains when you read this, in this part of the parable, is what is Jesus saying about those who fall in this category? Those that profess faith in Christ, but actually are not investing their time, not investing their effort, their money, not investing the gifts that God has given them into the furtherance of the kingdom of God. And I think there are two views that people will often hold here. One is that this person is still a believer and will still be saved. And the scripture used to support this is often 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 to 15. Let's just read that. Each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, although in context, this is actually talking about teachers within the church, this specific passage, the principle would remain that all of us are called to build God's church. So this building analogy could apply to all works that Christians do. So this is one view. And then the other view is that despite their confession, this person actually is not a believer at all. And the scripture that would point to this would be Titus 1 verses 15 to 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And the difference in the outcome between these two views could not be more stark. An eternity with Jesus or an eternity separated from Jesus? This is huge. An eternity with Jesus or an eternity separated from Jesus. Now, it seems to me that this third servant does not know Jesus. He incorrectly thinks of him as a harsh man, but in reality, to his faithful servants, he is generous. His severeness is only towards those that reject his kingship, which is actually what we see from this servant, as he does nothing at all in obedience to the master. For this reason, I think this servant represents those that know the gospel, that profess to know God, but are not seeking to build God's kingdom. They are denying him by their works. Indeed, they have no works to be burned up, to use the Corinthians 3 analogy. This could not be more serious because it is telling us that there are those that claim to know Jesus, but don't know him at all. Again, we need to examine our hearts. Are we eager to carry out works that bring glory to God? How do we feel about what we have, investing what we have for the furtherance of his kingdom? Are we seeing fruit from a relationship with the Holy Spirit in our lives? As detailed in Galatians 5, are we growing in these things? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If we're not eager to bring glory to God, if we're not seeing any growth in these areas, we need to ask ourselves, do we really know Jesus? 
Or like the third servant, have we just taken what he's given us and hidden it away? Now, if we find ourselves in this position, there is good news. Because as we've seen, salvation comes by grace alone. None of us will ever achieve it by our own works. We need to repent and look to the cross to ask Jesus to fill us. If we're in this place, to ask Jesus to change our hearts, to place ourselves under his lordship and then seek to follow him in obedience, which, as I've said, we will never achieve perfectly this side of his return. But over time, if we do this, we will start to see an increased eagerness to do good work. So Holy Spirit will start to grow us to be more like Jesus. So if you're in this category, repent and seek the faith of Jesus, the face of Jesus. Okay, let's look at the last section, the last verse of this passage. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now we see from verse 14 that these enemies are the citizens that do not want the noblemen to reign over them. So this is anybody that refuses Jesus's lordship. Let's be really clear. This is horrifying. Because Jesus is saying that people who do not want his absolute authority over them will be slaughtered before his eyes. I don't know about you, but I can be tempted to feel absolutely bewildered in how to respond to this. I have family, I have friends who do not accept Jesus' lordship. So to read this should cut us to the very core. So how do we respond? I think, firstly, if we know Jesus, we have to have humility, knowing that this is the just punishment for sin against a holy God, a perfectly holy God, and knowing that the only reason that we ourselves are not facing this punishment is entirely because of his undeserved grace towards us. There is sin in all of our hearts. We still need to repent of our own rebellion. So the first thing is we must have humility and we need to be deeply, deeply moved by this. In all our imperfections as forgiven sinners, we need to move into the lives of those that do not know Jesus and tell them the truths of the gospel that they so desperately, desperately need to hear. Even if we are despised by doing so, as Paul says, it is worth it for the sake of the elect. So if you are here this morning and you do not know Jesus, please know that this is a gut-wrenching truth for me to share. So I ask you, I beg of you to turn towards Jesus, to ask him to help you repent of your sin and to begin to follow him. And in his grace, when you do, he will give you not just everything that you could ever need, which in itself is astonishing, but he also gives us himself as saviour, redeemer, as father and as friend. And as he does so, by his spirit in us, he gives us assurance of an eternity, a fullness of joy in his presence. Grace Church, Jesus is the perfect nobleman. He is the perfect master. And he is coming back to claim those that are his and to reward us with more joy than our minds could conceive. 
but for now he has equipped us for the highest possible calling to invest in his kingdom for his glory. So let's take what he has given us. Let's put our faith in him to make something beautiful for all eternity out of it. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, we come before you this morning so grateful in awe of your incredible grace towards us that we sinners, Lord, would receive grace and mercy and forgiveness from you. I pray, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your spirit, you would help us, Lord, as we seek to bring glory to you through our lives, to do the good works that you have already prepared for us, Lord, help us to walk in them. And for any, Lord, that are walking away from you that don't know you, I pray, Lord, that they would encounter you this, this, this day, Lord, this week. In Jesus' name, amen.